Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good, Mitchie Poo. Have a one, two, three inning. No way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> now the stretch. Three, two, pitch. Swing and a miss, struck him out. Phillies are the 93 National League champions. Mitch Williams, a one, two, three save, and this place is Bedlam at Veterans Stadium. This wacky, wonderful bunch of throwbacks has won the National League pennant and go on to the World Series. Welcome back. It's Ray Dinger and Glenn Mack now, 94 WIP. That great highlight of the Phillies winning the uh, 1993 NLCS. And Mitch Williams gives you a clue of our guest today for Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbank.com. Mitch Williams is one of the most exciting players ever to put on the pinstripes. Three seasons here. He had 102 saves, was part of the beloved 1993 Macho Row team that went to beat the Braves, went to the World Series, ended, of course, with Joe Carter launching a home run off of Mitch, but Mitch's handling of that moment won him permanent respect with his fan base. It's always It always was a thrill ride watching Mitch with the long hair and the delivery that had him fall off the mound after every pitch. The Wild Thing joins us now. Mitch, thanks for being our guest. Glad thank you all for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm looking forward to it. So we always like to start at the beginning. You grew up in Westland, Oregon, south of Portland. Give us kind of your memories of how you started playing baseball. Well, I started playing when I was five years old. I remember that. And I remember I had to play shortstop because I was the only kid that could throw it across the diamond. Being left-handed, that to me, it didn't make any difference at the time. But growing up, I figured out that you don't play shortstop if you're left-handed. So uh, that's how I got started into baseball. I played whatever was in season growing up, Glenn. You guys know how that was. I'm sure you and Ray were the same way. Mm -hmm. If it was basketball, I'd watch half a basketball game, then go out and play it. That's how we were. were. We played football, baseball, basketball. We just ran around our neighborhood. I left. I was born in Santa Ana, California, and we left there, I believe, when I was four. So growing up in Oregon, it was awesome. There were no fences. It was just a place to run free and have fun. Well, you obviously, yeah, you you obviously had a great high school career uh, in baseball. Your team won the state championship, and you were seventeen and zero. Um, 
which I don't, you know, I, I, that record probably still stands at Westland High School. I, uh, but when did you, I, I would suspect with that kind of success and your team having that kind of success, um, there must have been scouts. I mean, you were probably being scouted. When were you first aware of the fact that you were, you were on the radar for people that were looking for future prospects? Well, back then, uh, if there was a scout in the stands, everybody knew it. Well, it started my junior year in high school, but it wasn't because of me. I got noticed because my older brother was drafted in 1981, the year before I was. And scouts would call the school my junior year and ask who was starting, and the school would tell them Williams. Well, they'd show up, and it wouldn't be my brother, it'd be me. So I got recognized my junior year because of my brother. So you get drafted by the Padres in 1982, uh, age 17. Man, you're going out trying to make a living, um, low A, Walla Walla, Washington. And I looked, your first few years in the minors, Mitch Williams. Now, you're a teenager, but you had ERAs of 478, 551, 620, 600. But clearly, they're interested in you. You're moving up. What was the indication that you were going to make it? Was it, well, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> okay, two things. Left-handed, and I threw above 95 miles an hour. That was the only indication, Glenn. <laughs> so I spent three and a half years in the minor leagues proving I couldn't start. Uh, it finally got to a point where I said, uh, I can throw two innings. The first two or the last two, you choose. And that's what it came down to. In the winter of 1985, I believe that I had gotten traded – I had taken in the Rule 5 draft in 84 by the Rangers. Spent a year in A-ball for the Rangers farm system in Salem, Virginia that year. Didn't pitch well. Got moved up to double-A because I got in an argument with the manager in A-ball. And went to double-A, went two and two. And then they sent me off to winter ball to play ball in Puerto Rico. And I honestly believe the Rangers sent me down there to try and blow me up because when I got there, the manager didn't tell me what, what my role was, nothing. So one night I'd throw in relief. Then they'd start me a couple days later. Then one night I, I threw the eighth and ninth inning of a game and showed up to the ballpark the next day and I was starting. And I went, okay, now they're either trying to blow me up or turn me into a reliever. So that spring, I threw well in relief in Puerto Rico. And that spring training, I, I went to camp, to big league camp. And it, Bobby Valentine had taken over halfway through in 85 for the Rangers, for Doug Rader. They were putting on a youth movement. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. There was nine rookies on that team in 86 for the Rangers. And I happened to be one of them. Because I threw 18 innings that spring, I believe. I think I gave up two runs. So I was the right guy in the right spot at the right time and just happened to throw really well. Yeah, you did. And you had, uh, and you came up with the Rangers in 86, and you had success right away. You were 8-6. and six. You got eight saves. As you said, Bobby Valentine's running the show there. Um, and you also had the opportunity of working with a really good pitching coach in Tom House, a guy who's... Um, been one of the more successful and one of the more well-known pitching coaches, bounced around different, a lot of different organizations, but had a lot of success. How much influence did he have on you, Mitch? I, I, I think I read an article that said that he's the one that really encouraged you to pitch every pitch out of the stretch. 
Yes. Uh, Tom single-handedly got me to the big leagues. Without him, I never throw a pitch in, in big league baseball, and that's just a fact. He took a 17-year-old kid. I was 6'2", ended up getting to 6'4". I weighed 160 pounds. I was all elbows and you-know-what going at the plate. And Tom only wanted to com- control what I did before I let go of it. And that's what he worked on. His not, he's a, Tom is a kinesiologist for people that don't know that. Yeah. He is an extremely intelligent guy. He knows everything about every muscle in the body, how it works. And he's the guy that taught me, you can throw every day if you want to. And I wanted to. And that's just how I approached the game. And I, I made myself, I think, in – 86, I set the rookie record for games pitched at 80. And then the following year, I pitched in 85. Mm-hmm. And then uh, last year in Texas, I was a closer. I only pitched in 67. But for those people who don't know, I games I pitched in, if I did not throw in the game, I threw a 50-pitch bullpen every single night for 162 games. Yeah, you worked. I mean, you were a workhorse, and you and you gave the stats, and you you pitched a lot in those days, and you pitched effectively. Uh, I want to fast forward it a little bit because we have so much to cover here. But just uh, in in '89, playing for Texas, 36 saves. You led the majors again with appearances. You made the All Star game. Um, I'm curious about the nickname. I'm going to move this along a little bit. Um, Major League the Movie comes out in 1989, and, of course, we right. all know. I was with the Cubs at the time. Okay. Did did you get – how did the nickname transfer from that movie to you? Calvin Schiraldi and I were bullpen mates with the Cubs. Very, very good friends. We were on the road – we went and saw the movie. We walked out of the movie, and that dumbass started calling me that name, and that's how it took off. It stuck for a long time. You and, yeah, and just it did. one other thing about it, because you know Ray was talking about Tom House and the influence on you. We watched you pitch, and um, it was always so fun with the long hair flying around, and and you almost falling down on every pitch, every delivery. Did you ever have a pitching coach or a manager try to change that rather unique, unconventional delivery? Well, the part about me falling down, that kind of happened after the 1990 season. I always fell off to my right side because I threw so far across my body. And no one ever tried to stop me from throwing across my body because throwing across your body keeps you healthy. And that's a, just a fact of the matter. It keeps everything close to where you're not blown open and exposing the UCL ligament, your shoulder, all of that. So no one ever tried to change that about me. There surely would be coach, pitching coaches that would say, not, don't go so drastically as far as I did. But that just is what felt comfortable to me. So – it started, I started falling down or putting my glove down. In 1990, I was covering first base, and I tore the posterior cruciate ligament in my knee. I never had it repaired. I pitched 30 days later and went on with my career. 
so I never had it fixed. But I'd get to a certain point in my delivery, and my knee would collapse. So I had to put my glove down or land on my face. It was one or the other. <laughs> Ray? You know, before before we get too far away from Ricky Vaughn and Major League, um, you know, I always assumed that you were wearing number 99 because the Charlie Sheen character wears, wears that in the movie, and I just thought it was it was the wild thing hookup. But then I, I read in a story that, no, 99, that you wore 99 because your favorite football player growing up was Mark Gastineau of the New York Jets. I didn't know that. But I, I, how, how did you develop an affinity for Mark Gastineau? Well, I can tell you, I watched football, Ray, growing up with my father, and I watched everything. I was a huge NFL fan. I was not a baseball fan in any way, shape, or form. I loved football. And I just became a Gastineau uh, fan back when he was sacking people. And he was really one of the first guys that would get up and celebrate stuff. Him and Joe Klecko. And then Klecko ended up in the movie Smokey and the Bandit. So it was just one of these things. These are guys I can root for. And no one ever knew I wanted that number because of that. But then I finally got to meet him, right? And I really wish I would have met him when he was playing <laughs> rather than after his uh, Studio 54 appearances. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I read a quote from you saying, you should never meet your heroes in later life. It's pro- there's probably a lot of truth in that. Yeah, there is. <laughs> All right. So. Uh, let's move it to 1991. Philly's about to go into the season. And um, as I remember, it was like right before opening day, like a day or two before opening day, Phillies make a deal with the Cubs. It had been rumored that the Phillies were interested in you, uh, and they trade, I'm trying to find who it was, uh, Bob Scanlon. Chuck McElroy and Bob Scanlon. Right, for you. What do you recall about the trade to Philadelphia, again, right on the eve of the season? Well, it's a long story, and it all leads back to Philly because there were rumors throughout that spring training that I was getting traded. There was, it was no secret Jim Fry and I did not get along at all. So I finish up one day out in spring training, and mind you, the release date for not having to pay full contracts has now passed. If they were to release me, they would have to pay me one-sixth of my contract. So anyway, game ends in spring training. Reporters are all over my locker afterwards. Had no idea why I didn't even pitch. Come to find out, Jim Price told them uh, if they don't trade me, they could release me. And so I went into Mr. Fry's office and I sat down with him and I said, well, Jim, I hear you're either going to trade me or release me. And he said, well, that's a possibility. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I hope you do. Then I'll be a free agent a year earlier and you'll be dubbed the stupidest GM in history. He <laughs> said, why is that? I said, you can trade me today for two guys making 100000 You're going to release me and pay me three seventy-five. I don't think that's very good business, Jim. And I walked out of his office. He waited until the night before the season to trade me for Scanlon and McElroy so I could get moved into my apartment in Chicago. So that's how that all went down. I didn't. Need, I, did, I grabbed my suitcase and left. I got to Philly. I had to borrow maroon shoes. I showed up in, in LaGuardia an hour before game time. 
Was there a, was there a feeling on your part? I mean, you had been with the Cubs, so you had been in the National League. You had been through Philadelphia. Was there a feeling on your part that Philadelphia would be a good situation for you? I mean, when you walked into it, did you feel good about it? I'll be honest, Philly was not one of my favorite places to come. I mean, I'm a country boy, so Philly is not some place that I would be drawn to until the fat guy got traded from San Diego over here. When Crucky came here, and he had been with the Phillies for at least a year, and I got the news that I had been traded here. I've known Crucky since I was 17 years old. So I was thrilled about being traded here to be have the opportunity to play with Jake, well, I mean with Crucky and Dutch and Lenny and those guys. I didn't have any idea how fun I was getting, how much fun I'd end up having, but it was the kind of baseball I wanted to play. Yeah, it was it was a fun and exciting team. Now ninety one and ninety two, the team wasn't particularly good. You had a really good year in ninety one. Thirty saves, twelve wins, two thirty four ERA. And um, early in that season, uh, the Phillies decide Nick Leva no, and they bring in Jim Fergosi. What was your uh, what was your relationship with Fergosi? What was your sense of, of Fergosi? Well, when I when I got to Philadelphia, Roger McDowell was a closer, so Nick Leva called us in when I first got here, and he said, "You and McDowell are going to split closing." I said, "Fine." Well, thirteen games into the season that year, they fired Nick and hired Jim. The first day Jim was there, and he called me in his office, and he said, you're the closer. And I said, okie dokie, and I walked out. Well, I knew why. And if you, go, if you were to go back and look at my statistics in 86 and 87 against the Chicago White Sox, it was ridiculous how good my numbers were, and Fergosi was the manager of those, those teams in Chicago. So – he had seen a bunch of me, and I, he happened, I, I believe he witnessed uh, the hardest I ever threw in a baseball game, and that was in, in Comiskey one night. They brought me in in a blowout game because it was coming out of my hand really good. So I came in the game, I threw 10 fastballs and struck out the side. And one guy fouled the pitch off. Never came out of my hand like that again. You know, you look at baseball today, you watch baseball today, it seems like it seems like every guy coming out of the bullpen throws 99 to 100. I mean, it's not that uncommon. I mean, if they, they flash the numbers up on the scoreboard now, for God's sakes. But back back then, Mitch, back in the early 80s, that was not that common. Um, people weren't as locked in on the radar gun quite as much. I'm just wondering, I mean, you you had to be – one of the hardest throwers in baseball at that time was, I mean, I, I mean, if, if in the top, top four or five velocity pitchers in baseball, you had to be one of them, right? Oh, I wouldn't say top four or five. I, I would have been in the top 20 probably, but what people need to understand and fans of the game need to understand, they are not looking at a hundred mile an hour fastball today. Back then, they used a ray gun. A ray gun is seven miles an hour slower than the striker gun they use today. And the reason I say this, and I, I didn't do the science on this. The scientists got together, and I read the report on it. The striker gun gets the ball out of the pitcher's hand. The ray gun got the ball as it crossed home plate. Mm -hmm. The scientist doing the math said that 
a baseball loses seven miles an hour traveling that 60 feet, six inches to home plate. So when it says 100, you're more than likely looking at 94, 93, 95. It's not 100. Yeah. So that's the difference. I was at 97. The hardest I ever got clocked on a ray gun was at 97. And I don't know what I would have been on a striker gun. If it, they say it's seven miles an hour, what, I'm up to, throwing 104 miles an hour? No, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> well, you were fast. We agree on that. Let's. Uh, we got a couple minutes before the first break, and let's get to 93. Let's get to the great year. Um, because I don't know that well, certainly the fans didn't see it coming. The local media didn't see it coming. I don't know if, if you guys did. And I, what I remember is there was a spring training fight against the Cardinals, and a lot of players on the team said that that day kind of coalesced what later became known as Macho Row as a team. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's pretty close to accurate. Uh, and it's funny because I wasn't on that trip for, oh, the, right. for that game. They were on the road, so I had to hear about it the next day. Well, Dave Hollins got plunked by Donovan Osborne in that game in spring training, and Dave decided that enough was enough. And he single-handedly set the tone for how that season was going to unfold. We were not going to be walked on, and we didn't care who it was. Right. <laughs> well, that was certainly true. I thought that um, th- that team had a very distinct personality. Today they would say that team had an edge. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the people in Philadelphia embraced that team because it was, it was sort of the, you know, the Broad Street bullies in pinstripes. I mean, it, re- it really was, and that's, that's the way that you guys played. Um, but going into the season, even though you had yeah, that kind of feeling and it was a great clubhouse and there was great chemistry on that team, you were still coming off last place the previous year. I mean, even though you had a really good feeling about the leadership on that team, how realistic did you think it was that you guys could turn it around and actually be a winning team in 93? Well, you know, Ray, the funny thing about that team, you want to say, I mean, all you're always confident, but you're realistic. And in 92, realistically, we didn't have a chance to win. We didn't have the talent to win. And then the moves that Lee Thomas made in the offseason to bring guys in, I started looking at him, and I'm thinking, okay, what kind of guy is this? And all Lee did, he went out and brought in guys that were basically characteristically mere images of himself. He had the nickname Mad Dog, and that's the kind of player he went after that that offseason. And that's a team he built. And I said in spring training that Lee had done a tremendous job of going out and assembling a prison squad. (laughs) All right, tell you what, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll get more from Mitch Williams about that great year and everything after that. Mitch Williams is our guest on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Hey, you're tired of dealing with your old drafty windows and doors in your house? Maybe it's time you finally go Guida. The great people at Guida Door and Window will help make your window and door replacement project more affordable with their buy one, get one half off sale. 
For every window or door you buy, you get a second one at 50% off. And you can mix and match the savings to suit your own needs. So, buy an entry door, get half off a storm door. Buy a patio door, get 50% off a window. If you need to replace all the windows and doors in your house, you save 50% on half your project. The more you need, the more you save. Plus, Guida is making it easier for you to afford your project with no money down and interest-free financing up to 18 months act now offers are a limited time only restrictions apply for full details call guided today schedule a free no obligation in-home estimate at one 877 or visit them at goguided.com that's go g-u-i-d-a dot worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole well good thing instacart shoppers are as picky as you are they find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line they are milk expiration date detectives they bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are so let instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date download the instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last minimum ten dollar per order additional term supply selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. And the pitch. Swing and a base hit! Welcome back. It is Tell Us Your Story. Glenn McNair, Ray Didinger, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. And what you just heard was one of the highlights of a year filled with highlights, which was Mitch Williams, of all people, driving in the winning run in a July game against the Padres. 
Mitch, my memory says 4.40 in the morning. 4.41. 4.41. Didn't want to cheat you of a minute. What's what? It, it was a game delayed by rain, back end of a doubleheader, that the umps decide we're playing this no matter what. And you come to bat. What's your recollection of the moment? Well, I'd come in. Uh, I didn't pitch in the first game. So I spent a lot of time in a bullpen that got emptied out. And at 1 o'clock, the first game ended, and they told us that we were starting the second game at 1.20. Well, my father had just flown in from Oregon that afternoon. So I walked over to him after the first game. I said, Pop, I said, the second game starts at 1.20. He said, it might for you. It don't for me. (laughs) He He said, give me the keys to your truck. The back of my pickup was a queen-size bed. So my father went out there and climbed in and went to sleep. And so anyway, I get brought into the game in the second game. In the eighth inning, Fergosi sends me out there. It's a tie game. And I threw the ninth and tenth. Or no, I threw the ninth and tenth. I got brought in the ninth. So I came out after the tenth, and Fergosi walked over to me, and he said, you're not going back out to pitch but I'm out of hitters, and you're due up fourth. I said, cool. So I grabbed my bat and gloves and my bat and started getting loose. And the first two guys of the inning got on. It's against Trevor Hoffman. Every time I got to hit, it was against one superstar closer or another. Sure. (laughs) So it wasn't much fun. But uh, the first two guys of the inning got on. Anki was on second. I can't remember who was on first, but Dutch was up. And Dutch strikes out on a changeup. And he, Trevor had a Hoffman had a good one. So I walked to the plate and I looked at Benito Santiago, who was my catcher in A ball with the Padres. I said, if Benny, if you call one changeup, I'm going to hit you right in the head with this bat. <laughs> so Trevor threw the first fastball right by me. I swung at it. It was way, I was way late. But I knew Trevor had good control. So I cheated like a son of a gun on the next pitch. I knew it was going to be a fastball and happened to guess right and put the barrel a little bad on it. That was um, that was pretty memorable. Uh, and there, there's so many aspects to it that they reopened the gates and people actually you know, who were listening on their car driving around heard that the stadium was open and you began getting people actually in the stadium at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, people just walking in for nothing to see the game. It was just so typical. Yeah. It, was just, it was just so typical of that whole year and the crazy stuff that went on around that team. We, did, uh, we had Larry Anderson on to do Tell Us Your Story early on, and he would spent a long time talking about that clubhouse and about the things that went on. And he, One of the things he told us was that he had a favorite cap that he wore all the time, and you set it on fire and just burned it up on him during that season. I don't remember that. I remember painting his hair on for him. <laughs> well, he said that this lucky hat was he, he wore it all the time because he was superstitious, I guess. Uh, and you just thought that it had gotten pretty gross over the course of the season, and uh, and you just said yeah, this it's sort of stinking up the clubhouse, so I'm going to get rid of it. So you torched it. Well, yeah, you got to keep tidy in the clubhouse, uh, yeah. Ray. That's how things have to stay. He was uh, one of. My favorite teammate, that guy, L.A., he was uh, – let me put it this way. He and David West, they are the ones that got all of the hard outs in 1993. 
Not me. They did. Okay. I want to let's do a little um I'm going to name a guy and give me like a quick 15 second uh th- your thoughts on the guy. One or two may take a little bit longer, but let's do that. Uh okay. Dutch Dalton. Greatest leader I've ever been around and just a guy that if I was building a baseball team, that would be the first brick I would put in there would be Darren Dalton. All right. Uh John Cruck. Crucky is a guy that was there for me when I was 17 years old. He was a little older than me. Always kept things light. He's always been a good friend to me. And could fall out of bed with his physique and get five hits on Christmas Day. Lenny Dykstra. Smartest baseball player I ever knew. Dumbest human I've ever met. (laughs) I've heard you say that. And have and Ray and I both having experienced ourselves with Dykes probably don't disagree. Uh, John Vukovic. Oh, that's that's a, that's such a tough one because I put him and Larry Boa in the same group. The only two coaches coaches I ever played for that truly cared if we won every single night. Okay. And then the last one, the last one I'm going to ask you, and, and I know your opinion is not unique on this, is Kurt Schilling. If I had a big game to win, I'd want that fat guy to pitch it. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I but... don't have a lot to say about his character. We're not friends, but I'm honest. Yeah, you the are man honest. Could pitch. Oh, absolutely, he could, and he won a lot of post game, post games, post season games here and elsewhere. Uh, but we all remember Kurt putting the towel on his head uh, when you would come in and pitch. It angered teammates, and I'm sure that did not sit well to you. Did you ever talk to him about that? Well, I gave him the opportunity to whip my ass, and he declined. Okay, so that's. That's kind of how I dealt with it that winter. I wasn't going to say anything about it during the World Series because I thought that would be a disruption. So after the season ended, I did call him at his house and told him I would be more than happy to drive to his house and we could settle it in his front yard. And he politely declined. You know, when you guys got to the postseason um, and had to play the Braves, who were really good and had the really good pitching staff and you know top to bottom they were they were the Braves I mean they were that good and they were the favorites to win um and and you guys beat them and then in the playoff you win two of the games you save two of the other ones and then you end it with the big strikeout um I I've and I know that you have that picture framed and hanging in your house you must of after that final strikeout that leap that you had off the mound um is that sort of like the ultimate moment? I mean, from your, the time you were a kid back in high school, 17 and 0, you always dream of getting that big strikeout to end the playoff series. I mean, that as, as sporting thrills go, that probably had to be about as good as it gets. Yeah, it really was for me. Uh, it was funny that that year we had a guy on the team named Don Paul. He was a reliever. And he had done a tremendous job for us, but he was not going to be on the postseason roster. So the game, the division clinching game was in Pittsburgh. And Fergosi 
called me and said, called down the bullpen and said, I know it's a safe situation. Donnie's not going to be on the postseason roster. I'm going to bring him in. I said, that's fine. So I wasn't on the mound when we clinched the division. So being able to be on the mound when we clinched the National League, that meant everything. It was the pinnacle of my career at the time, obviously. It was a great moment. And, it was I mean, for fans here who were so hungry and loved that team, it was a moment, that picture that Ray mentioned, a lot of people have that picture everywhere. Uh, and you had a great series against the Braves, but it, it was apparent that your velocity was going down toward the end of the year. Uh, I'm gonna our, our friend Jason Stark, who covered it back then, said as we go in as we got into October, the only thing dropping faster than the temperature was Mitch Williams' fastball. Um, were you on fumes by the end of the season? Uh, that would be an excuse, Glenn. I don't use excuses. A guy don't hit how you feel. He hits what he sees. And if I'd have made better pitches, our team would have won. It's just that simple. How did you feel going into the going into the series? How did you feel that you matched up with the with the Blue Jays? <laughs> to us, it was we were looking at a team full of Hall of Famers. We shouldn't have beat the Braves. There was no way we could have been, should have beat the Braves. We went into that series with Toronto with nothing to lose, and that's how we played it. And the bottom line is, let's just be as honest as we can be here. The Philadelphia Phillies would have beat that team if I hadn't had such a bad series. And that's just a fact. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to the moment. You were not alone, by the way. Other than Schilling, the starters gave up 25 runs in 24 innings. So – there wasn't a whole lot of good pitching all around. Um, but we know what happens in game four. Um, the team gets a lead. You go in, blow the lead. Uh, the Blue Jays win 15-14. And then, of course, game six. Uh, Phillies are down, but they have a – down three games to two, excuse me, have a six to five lead after eight. You come in, you walk Ricky Henderson, you get Devon White to fly out. Paul Molitor lines the single, and then Joe Carter. It is a famous moment in baseball. Um, I think what is remembered most at this point is how well you handled the aftermath, how you you faced the music. Um, and I'm just curious kind of how you felt at the time and how that moment has kind of sat with you for all these years. Well, honestly, and I- I'm, I get uncomfortable sitting here listening to people talk about how great I handled it and all that. I was mad. I was as pissed off as a man could be. That's all I can tell you. I was mad. I was upset that I let down my team. I was upset that I let down my city. But the bottom line was if more people, if it was expected of more people to react to adversity, that way, maybe society wouldn't be what it is today. I, I was just raised, you take, you, you are accountable for your actions. It's that simple. You can't hide. Don't ever lie about them. I was taught that at a very young age. Don't ever lie about what you've done. And just accept responsibility for it. That's all I did. It wasn't anything special. 
it was what I was taught and how I was raised. And I, I just assumed that everybody was raised that way. Well, not everybody was, and not everybody handles moments like that quite the way you did. Um, and you did, and Glenn quite right. I mean, you did win pretty universal respect from the reporters that were there covering it and the fans who read about the fact that you sat at your locker and you talked about it and you didn't hide out, as a lot of guys would have. Uh, and, that, uh, and, and that earned you a lot of respect. But still, there's the memory of what happened. And, you know, you come back to Philadelphia, and that turns out to be the last pitch that you threw as a Philly. Was that your feeling that that was like the likely outcome, or did you think there was a chance that you could come back and play for the Phillies the following year and maybe the year after that? No, I was hoping I could come back. Uh, I love playing in Philly. I really did. I, it, Philadelphia is not my lifestyle, but the people are the kind of people I love to be around. I'm a country boy. I like to be out in the country with my horses and hunting and doing that kind of stuff. That's hard to do in downtown. (laughs) But if you want honesty, Philadelphia is the place you come if you want honesty. And you, and you did, you know, your career after, after this, your career kind of tailed off. Uh, went to Houston for a while. Um, came, by the way, came here with the Esters, got a great reaction from the people here. Pitched a little bit for the Angels in Kansas City, and like every uh, athlete, your career ends. Came back here. I know you did the bowling alley. You had a thing going with Chile. You coached the minor league baseball. How do you think you are remembered and regarded in this city? Because we have our opinion. Well, the only way I've ever wanted to be regarded is – as a guy that every time I was handed the baseball, the people that plopped down money to watch us play got every single thing I had in me that night. And that'll, that can never be questioned. And that's all I ever cared about. You know, I saw, I saw the quotes that you said, that, and this was after your career was over, but you were looking back. And you said that after you left Philadelphia, when you left Philadelphia, and Glenn mentioned the stops, Houston, California, Kansas City, um, you didn't pitch well. And, and you said, he said it wasn't, it wasn't as much physical, it was mental. You said, mentally, I was done after Philadelphia. Yeah. And, and you said, and when, when you're done mentally, you're done. I mean, it's just, you yeah. know, the physical part, the physical part can't overcome the mental part. And you were done when you left Philadelphia. Um, and, that's, and that's just kind of how you felt. Was it... Was it really just? Was it really just the Carter shot? Was it really the end of that game? Was that was that what took it away? Oh no no no! That had I gave up home runs before that, and I gave up home runs after that. Trust me, nothing that has ever happened on a baseball field would mentally affect me. What happened off the baseball field did, because I looked back at that '93 season. It was the best season of my career, the best team I could have ever been a part of, gave everything I had, went to a World Series, and got traded. After that point, it became extremely clear to me that the game was a business, and it was about money, and I was not going to play the game for money. I wanted to play the game because I loved it, and I loved the guys I was playing with. And when I left here, mentally I was defeated because of those reasons. 
not because of the home run, because of having the best year of my career and the success that we had as a team and then still got traded for it. So I never got past that. Um, we have a few minutes left. I want to get to what's what's your uh, your life after baseball. Again, you're you're here. You were broadcasting, and you're doing a nice job broadcasting. You're on MLB Network, um, and then an episode happened in 2014. I'm going to try to recount it quickly, and if I get anything wrong, you tell me. There was a little league tournament. You got into an argument with an umpire. Story comes out on Deadspin, accusing you of all kinds of inappropriate behavior. Um, story's wrong. You sue. Takes three years. Uh, MLB Network decides they're done with you, and in 2017 you're awarded a million and a half, but your broadcasting career is over. Uh, I hope I got that right. It had to be a very tough time for you to clear your name and try to restore a career. Well, I knew restoring my career was never going to happen because baseball wasn't going to let that happen. Uh The entire story of the tournament was complete falsehoods. Rip, Billy Ripken, I worked with Billy Ripken at MLB Network. I went to him the following Monday after that tournament and said, Billy, I want to get a video of this game. Wouldn't give it to me. I thought that was strange because every video is a, every game played at a Ripken facility is available on video, except this one. I tried to get it, couldn't get it. Billy had it. MLB Network had it the following day. Everything printed in that article is proven false by that video. Mm-hmm. How did people think I won the lawsuit against a billion-dollar industry? Because all I did was play the video for the jury. None of it happened. So it was – Oh, a horrible time in my life. Let's put it that way. Way worse than losing the World Series. Yeah. And you had, you had, as Glenn had said, you had made real inroads in broadcasting. I mean, you had done well. You had worked here at WIP and did well. You worked, were part of the morning show. It was Angelo loved working with you. The audience loved you. You moved on to MLB. You were doing really good there. Um I mean, it, it's, it seems like you really had the beginning of a whole new career taken away from you. Well, I was, I think, eight years into my new career, and I'll be honest with you, Ray, I loved it. I had an absolute blast doing it. I mean, number one, I couldn't blow a game again, which was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, a lot but less I pressure. Sit, yeah, it is. it's a lot less pressure, and you're sitting back. And all I ever wanted to do when I got into broadcasting was be as honest as I could possibly be. And the one thing I always wanted to remember when I started it, I played the game, and the game ain't so easy. That's all I ever wanted to remember. And remember every mistake I was going to point out, I made 100 times myself. So that's how I went into it. I loved it. I had success with it. And then – People had other designs for me, I guess. But this is where my life is now, and I'm happy. I'm working. I'm partners at a company in Mount Laurel, uh, a trucking brokerage. Uh, Raymond Transportation Corporation is the name of it, and they flew in and offered me a partnership six years ago and been the greatest move of my life. All right, one other thing. Let's close with this because I know that one other thing that's happening now, and Ray and I have seen the video, is you have a son – 
who looks like he may have a promising career. Uh, baseball, football. Tell us about tell us about your son. Well, my son Declan, he's 18. He's at Paul the Sixth High School here in South Jersey. He was uh, he's a tremendous football player. Uh, he's a linebacker. He signed a letter of intent for a full scholarship at the University of Rhode Island to play football and baseball there. But right now, his focus is on the major league draft coming up in June. He's uh, an extremely good catcher that can hit. Let's just put it that way. Well, I saw, I did see the video. Uh, I didn't see any of the baseball, but I saw the football. He, um, Mitch, uh, I mean, he looks like he, he looks like a linebacker. I mean, that's where they played him, Paul the Six. He's got the instinct for it. He's got the size for it. Um, he really, he just has, he just has a natural aptitude for the game. I mean, I know if he's drafted into the baseball draft, he's going to have to consider that, but I'm telling you, he's got the instincts to play linebacker, certainly at Rhode Island and who knows, maybe beyond. Well, that's what I was looking for when I sent you the video, Rick. I don't know. I know athleticism. That's all I know. I can't tell you if he's a great football player or what. I just know he's got good instincts and he's athletic as hell. So it was, I appreciate hearing those words about him. He, He's fun to watch play either sport, and I think I'm going to have to sit back and see what happens in June, and I don't know. I don't have a preference what he does. My preference is that he's happy, so <laughs> we'll sit back and see what happens. Well, Mitch Williams, I got to say, it was it was very fun to watch you, although sometimes it was a little nerve-wracking. It is always fun to talk to you, and we hope maybe someday – in a local uniform, we get to watch your son. Thanks for being our guest on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Mitch, it's been great. Glenn, let me say say this about you and Ray. If everyone in Philadelphia was as classy as you two, this would be the classiest place in the world. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. I really do appreciate well, it's that. Just, it's just a fact, guys. You guys do a great job, and you're outstanding at your jobs. Well, there you go. Always, <laughs> always nice and a little unexpected to end with a compliment. And Mitch Williams was a lot of fun to watch and a lot of fun to interview, and we appreciate him being part of Tell Us Your Story. All right, it is time for what we forgot to talk about with our producer, Dan Wilson. Dan, I think we covered everything there is to cover today. Yeah, we got a few things that I wanted to hit on. One is uh, you and Ray briefly hit on uh, how Nikola Jokic now seems to be the consensus MVP in the NBA. Uh, The running theory on this, or kind of the odd shift that we've seen, is that the Tim Bontemps uh, ESPN MVP straw poll that factors in a lot of people who will actually be voting on this, their minds seem to be Jokic, and that wasn't that long ago. That was about 10 days ago that poll came out. So it seems like... The odds and all the sports books have shifted that Jokic is the favorite. Of course, it doesn't come out till after the playoffs at the awards ceremony, but it, it looks like that's what we're headed for. Yeah, I, that's that's. I mean, you're you're citing kind of what I had heard and and the discussion. Again, I mean, I watch Jokic play, but I can't say that I watch you know more than five, ten, whatever games they play. So I, I can't judge it enough. Uh, all I can say is Embiid is having the best year of his career. Um, the Sixers have kind of faded, but uh, he has not, and uh, I would love to see him win. Don't think it's going to happen. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll take them winning in the playoffs and lose the MVP. Yeah, I, I would take that as well. And really quickly, just these last two games they have here, they do actually need to win one more game to ensure that they are the four seed 
and would likely then host the Raptors in a playoff series, which, of course, Matisse Thibel, we found out this week, would not be available for games three, four, and six uh, in that. And when they went to Toronto the other day, by the way, Sixers were down Thibel. The Raptors were out two starters in Ananobi and uh, Van Vliet as well. Yeah, I, and I'm telling you, they, they play the Raptors. It's It's not a gimme. No, not at all. I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what the odds are. I think the Sixers will be a slight favorite. But as you just mentioned, losing one of your best defensive players, a guy in your starting rotation for three of those games could be a huge factor. And if it turns out to be that way, I mean, I mean I'm kind of projecting here, but if they end up losing that series, oh, God, close because they lose those games in Toronto, uh, it's going to be tough for Matisse to show his face around town for a while. Yeah, not not great. And for a guy who was really well-liked pretty yes. much up until this week, it's kind of Very a Very popular guy and and deserves to be a popular guy, but it is not helping. His decision is not helping his team. I think everybody can agree on that. Yes, I would agree on that as well. And then a takeaway I had from baseball opening day, you know, we hit on the Phillies and how the bats came alive. I thought yesterday was kind of a microcosm for what we're going to see all season, some really good offense, some really bad defense. A questionable Girardi decision, Nola collapsing after six innings. It was like yes, everything yes, packed yes. into one. But maybe my favorite part of the entire day, and this was all around Major League Baseball, you saw it a few times in the Phillies games, is the new replay system and how they no longer have that poor staff member lugging out all the equipment. Like the the umpires actually make the announcements in the stadium. And I don't know if you saw how the Tigers game ended yesterday, but I did not. So Javier Baez comes up in a tie game in the ninth inning, tie games, runner on third. And with two outs, this happens. To right field, deep. Pollock backpedaling at the wall, and oh! catch it, he did. <laughs> it bounced out right of hits the wall, and then he grabbed it. Baez claiming it hit the wall. After review, rule on the fan is overturned. You have no catch. Run score. That's a game winner. His sixth walk-off winner. In Javier Baez's career, the Tigers win on opening day. They beat the White Sox at Comerica Park 5-4. You know, walk-off replay announcement <laughs> walk off replay. on opening day. On opening day. Well, that was perfect. By the way, I think there were four walk-off home runs yesterday. Yeah, it was a great day of baseball. Day. Yeah, It's so nice to have baseball back. It is. And I am very excited about the Phillies. The game today, 4 o'clock start, or 4.05 start. I know that they're going to be honoring the MVP, Bryce Harper, before that, so that should be fun. Sixers about to tip off against the Pacers, a game I predict they will win by 20. Uh, and there you go. All right, it has been a pleasure. Nice job by you, Dan Wilson. Very much appreciate it. Go Birds Radio is coming up next from Parks Casino, so you want to listen to those guys right into Phillies against the Oakland A's this afternoon. I'm Glenn Mack now for Ray Didger. Thanks so much for joining the show. We'll see you tomorrow. A 94 WIP. Hey, you already know that United Tire delivers value and expertise, but now they're also delivering hope. Right now, a portion of purchases made at United Tire will help those in desperate need in Ukraine via United Way. With locations across the Delaware Valley, you can trust you're getting the best deal on the industry's most trusted tires while helping those displaced in Ukraine. United Tires, united for Ukraine. Remember, don't drive alone. Drive United. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, oh, oh. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.